for the purification of mind, for overcoming sorrow and distress, for the end of pain and sadness, and for realizing the liberation of mind, the Buddha said, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. This is a well-known, often quoted uh, excerpt from the Buddha's Discourse on Mindfulness, which many believe to be maybe the most important uh, practice directing discourse of the Buddha. But when we listen to what the Buddha said to overcome all sorrow and distress, to overcome all pain and sadness, to liberate the mind, do we even believe that's possible? Do we find this hard to believe? Do we have faith that it is so? Or are we actively practicing taking refuge in the Buddha and hoping <laughs> that we'll find some confirmation somewhere in our retreat? The primary element for realizing what the Buddha is guaranteeing is to be mindful. The Arden is Arden. Clearly aware is an element of mindfulness or maybe the result of continuity of mindfulness. But it is mindfulness that the Buddha said will offer this relief from suffering. So we should really try to understand what mindfulness is so that we can practice in accordance with our understanding. Because to just sit here or to, you know, stay in the stay in the forest here and sit and walk and get your meals served for a week or 10 days or here 16 days would be a great relief uh, beneficial just doing that but so much more is possible if we actually use the opportunity to fully to develop mindfulness so what's mindfulness I mean, we've been practicing it for years, decades, continuously for the last four days. It's knowing the present moment's experience. It is knowing in a way that directly experiences, and we sometimes say it is with bare attention, meaning it is attention without any other agenda, without any comment, without any spin, without any flavor or preference. It's just attention bare of the present moment. 
it is a clear knowing of the way it is right now. I like to think of it as a participatory awareness because it feels like we're not quite scientific about our observation as if we're looking at something out there and we're not totally indulging in it as if it is totally in here. But there's this balance between subjective and objective where we understand when we're mindful that there is both subjective and objective experience of this moment. It's said that the characteristic of mindfulness is to not float away, meaning when the mind touches this present moment, it doesn't just glance off the present moment's experience. It doesn't just kind of skim over the present moment's experience. It actually goes into the present moment, meaning that it's not superficial. And by going into the present moment, there is established an intimate relationship with the present moment. Mindfulness is ultimate intimacy with this body, this mind, this moment. There is, as we know, in using English language, awareness, just being aware. Well, I mean, you could ask anybody, are you aware? And if they can even understand what you're saying, of course they would think you were an idiot for even asking. But are you mindfully aware is something much more refined, much more defined than just, are you aware, casually. The function of mindfulness is to remember. Now, you've all had the experience of not remembering <laughs> because we sit down and we, we, we direct the mind to be aware, to be mindful. And we remember for a second or two or five and we forget. Or the mind forgets, meaning mindfulness does not, is not there. Mindfulness isn't there to remember presence of mind in this moment. Now, many people like the first sitting after breakfast when there's a 10 to 12 minute guided meditation or induction into the sitting practice because, partly, there's someone telling you, reminding you, remembering for you to be mindful and directing your attention to this, then this, then this, then this. And we all know how, well, it's easier 
to hear someone and do it than to remember for ourselves and do it. But even then, I'm sure you've noticed that even though it's only a 10-minute guided meditation, the mind can wander for most of it sometimes. Just not hearing, not making sense of, and not really applying the mind as the instructions or as the guide is directing. When someone says to direct your attention to the feeling of the sensations in your right hand or your buttocks or the breath, we, we can do that. It's not hard to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful. Sairo Tejaniya says, it's not difficult to be mindful, but it's difficult to remember continuously. So the characteristic is to not float away, not to skim over, not to glance off. The function is to remember, or we could say unforgetfulness. Mindfulness manifests, when mindfulness is present, it manifests as facing the object, facing the present moment, coming into face-to-face -face contact with present moment without spin, without distortion, without agenda, but also without indulgence, without avoidance, without denial, dismissal, and not creating anything out of it. That's pretty bare. That's pretty, that's pretty thin. It's not, it's, we could say it's unelaborated knowing. We're not elaborating this recognition, this remembering of this moment. We're not elaborating it with any additional meaning, value, understanding, satisfaction, nothing. It's unelaborated in that way. Of course, to be mindful, it takes energy, it takes attention, it takes uh, you know, a, a certain steadiness, a certain application of mind, a certain sustaining of the mind. But the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise in this moment is Mindfulness in the previous moment. Okay, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? This moment of mindfulness or the other? Well, what, what that means is that the more mindful you are, the more mindful you are. If and when you establish mindfulness, it's more likely you'll be more mindful. This is encouragement to persevere. Because if we don't persevere, of course, the present moment is not going to condition the next moment. But what we can work with is the second proximate cause for mindfulness, and that is clear perception. Clear perception is the ability to recognize what is being known in this moment. One of the instructions that we offer you is 
an option, an optional instruction, is to name your experience, to label it even, or to note it with a word. It's a word of recognition. To label something, you must recognize what it is, um, or at least that there is some experience being known. When we label our experience, or when we develop the habit of labeling or naming our experience, it sometimes initially feels like a lot of words in the mind, feels like a lot of effort to find the right word, but it is the tool for <coughs> sharpening your perception. We don't offer this just as a kind of something to do make work, it has a function of sharpening your perception, which is the proximate cause for the continuity of mindfulness. It's also good feedback to ourselves of whether we're really being present with this moment. Because so often I hear from yogis, that, oh yeah, I, I, was, I was mindful, I was very mindful for this sitting or this period of time. And when I ask, well, what were you aware of, have no, have no idea. Well, it's hard to believe that somebody is very mindful if they can't tell you what they're mindful of. There's a feeling of being mindful. We think we're being mindful but we're really not recognizing anything that might not be mindfulness. Mindfulness answers the question, what, rather than why. Now this, unfortunately, is contrary to our educational conditioning, which is often answering or seeking explanations for why, problem solving, and why is this this way, why is it that way. And so our tendency in practice is to ask, why is this happening? And, and we come up with rationale, rationalizations, explanations, uh, narratives, explaining what's happening, but not really just bear attention to what is happening. So you might ask yourself, when you're being mindful, what the narrative in your mind is, is saying. If it is anything more than a single word in each moment, there's some explaining, some filling in, some narrating, some, uh, you know, kind of story making, rather than just the bare <coughs> breathing in, out, hearing, thinking, planning, aching, tingling, numbness. When we say, when we are able to recognize experience as a single object in each moment, Tingling, pressure, in, out, thinking, planning. We cut the story 
of, oh, I was thinking about and planning and this, and you know, I got excited and I felt all this, you know, energy in the body, and then it, that's a story. While there was some experience of all of those objects, there wasn't the clear recognition of them as an object being known. They were just elements of the story. And we get identified with the story rather than disidentified with this impersonally arisen object which is being known. So it's important to really watch how you acknowledge your mindfulness. Is it a running commentary of what you're being mindful of? Which is a story-making, self-identifying, owning of the story process, rather than is there just a simple mindful awareness, recognition, mindful recognition of this moment, next moment, next moment. As simple as mindfulness is, that it is just this bare attention to and recognition of present moment's experience. Our habits of mind attach all kinds of conditions and baggage and agendas to the simplicity of bare attention and awareness. So it is helpful to identify some of the agendas that attach themselves to our practice so that we can see them, so that we can begin to recognize them in our practice and understand that that's not mindfulness in and of itself. It's baggage in your effort to be, or on your effort to be mindful. And with that understanding, you can begin to remove it or uh, find a way to put it aside. One agenda that very frequently attaches itself to being mindful is the idea that we're creating or making something happen. That somehow being mindful is to make something happen, to make ourselves be better, to understand, to um, actually succeed at following the instruction. You know, we, we talk about the primary object of the breath and mindfulness being aware of breathing in when you breathe in, breathing out, uh, being aware of breathing out when you breathe out, actually feeling the sensations. When you judge yourself as not being very good at doing that, there was an assumption that that was what you were supposed to be doing. Now, I know that sounds a little contradictory. Yes, we want you to try to be aware of breathing in when you breathe in. Try to be aware of breathing out when you breathe out. But when we evaluate our success at doing that, we've attached a goal of success or continuity or 
some something to the instruction that's extra. Even if you tried and never succeeded, you could still be very mindful. Your judgment of how continuous you are is not a good indication, really, of how mindful you are or how successful your practice is. Yes, we must make the effort. Yes, we must direct our attention. But when we judge ourselves as, oh, I can only, I, you know, my mind wanders away. You know, my mind wanders away. And we, and we, all, we all have that experience. Then we judge ourselves as not being very successful. I'll get to that. I'll get to more of that. Another agenda that attaches itself to our mindfulness is, is trying to get rid of something, trying to avoid something, which is, of course, aversion. We think if the instruction is to be mindful is to be mindful of the breath, that when the mind wanders, we have to get rid of it. And we judge ourselves when the mind wanders and we notice it wandering. We think, that's bad. We judge ourselves as that's bad. And we try to get rid of the wandering mind. Or we try to, uh, when we're watching, when we want to be observing the breath, and pain arises in the body and we start getting fidgety and, you know, you know our, our attention is going to our pain, we try to get rid of the pain. We try to ignore it. We try to get rid of it so that we can get back to the instruction that we're supposed to be doing. This is an agenda. This is other than recognizing the present moment's experience. It's having an agenda to stay with the breath, or it's having an agenda to get rid of discomfort, or to stop the wandering mind. Attent, uh, attachment, aversion. Sometimes we try to figure out logically what is happening or why it's happening. Rationalizing, explaining, solving the problem that seems to be why we can't, that seems to answer why we can't be mindful. I'm not the only one that does this, right? <laughs> I, I know, I know it happens. And, and the explaining and the figuring out and, you know, trying to rationalize why we are or why we aren't continuously aware is an agenda that's attached itself to just recognizing present moment's experience. Sometimes we really get caught in analyzing, comparing, evaluating our practice, evaluating this moment in relation to the last sitting or what we've heard others talk about or what we imagine we're supposed to be doing. If you're comparing this experience of your practice with anything else, there's baggage in your effort. Baggage on top of the bare attention of just noticing this, this is the way it is. Sometimes we try to explain really why or what is happening. You know, we have a very elaborate personal history. And we know it well. We have repeated the story of our life endlessly. 
we keep reaffirming it to make sure we don't forget. <laughs> I, I mean, why else? And when, you know, the present moment arises, so often there's an immediate piece of our personal narrative that explains it, why it's arising. Oh, I had this to eat for breakfast, therefore. You know, oh, this is my mother's birthday, therefore. Oh, I didn't get enough sleep, I think, therefore. And, and the whole story of our life comes out in reaction to a relationship to the present moment, the evolving present moment. We just keep the story going. No matter what occurs, we weave it into the story of our life. When it's just something that happens due to conditions that have often, well, nothing to do with you. And yet, because there's a knowing of it, we weave it into the story of our life without really ever looking, without ever seeing that it is an impersonally arisen experience due to causes and conditions outside of our control that until we weave it into the story of our life has nothing to do with us. But because we weave it into the story of our life immediately upon its arising, explaining how it fits. Did you ever have anything happen to you that didn't belong to your life? I mean, I mean, we find a way to weave everything into the story of me. Or we own it. We own experience. Whatever happens, we take responsibility for it. Or we, or we blame ourselves for it. Something happened, knee, you know, pain in the body. I'm doing something wrong. If I'm trying to be mindful, paying attention to the breath, and I have pain in the body, obviously I'm doing something wrong. My fault. This is adding a, a, a layer of ownership and attachment to whatever you're mindful of, or whatever you're trying to be mindful of. This is baggage. This is baggage. This is not necessary. This is not mindfulness. This is not bare attention. This is awareness with baggage attention. There are three flavors to owning experience. I'm going into a lot of detail because just so that when you hear this, you may recognize it in your, in your own practice. There are three flavors of owning experience. And the first is thinking, this experience is me. Second is, I am causing this experience. I'm the effector of this experience. And the third is thinking that it's unique to me only. You know, whether it's pain, nobody's got this kind of pain like I, no, nobody, look, everybody's so still and quiet. Nobody's got my problem. I'm so unique in the challenges of being mindful. Well, we all do this. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I want to say it's universal, but there might be somebody who it doesn't happen to. So let me refrain from that. 
Or another, another assumption that attaches itself to our awareness that complicates our practice is when the feeling of this is the way it's going to be forever attaches itself to a momentary perception. You know, sit down, 10 minutes into the sitting, all the familiar discomfort starts. And you think, here I am, I'm going to struggle with this the rest of the sitting, if not the rest of the retreat, probably my whole life. <laughs> but it's not only difficult and unpleasant experience, you know, you sit down, you have a good sitting, I mean, or a part of a good sitting, and you think, Finally. <laughs> now the retreat is really going to be good. <laughs> you know. and, and that eternalizing, I call it eternalizing, but it's an assumption that it's just going to last forever. You can see it is not seeing, not recognizing impermanence. It's not. It's assuming it's going to... This is baggage. This is baggage because... A momentary perception of an unpleasant phenomena, eternalized into the whole sitting, the whole retreat, or forever, is unbearable. Unbearable. You can't, you, we, none, none of us could, could deal with anything that lasted forever. It's overwhelming. Even if it's pleasant, imagine the best meal that you could ever have. But that's the only one you could have for the rest of your life. It's like, it'd be sickening. It'd be overwhelming. It would be unbearable. But the mind, the mind does this. These are, these are habits of the mind, the habits of the deluded mind, the, the, the mind that is unaware and has wrong views or multiple layers of delusion. There are many other agendas that attach themselves, but I think you get the message. I want to go back to something I said about the proximate cause for mindfulness being clear perception, the ability to recognize or to name, to label your experience. There's a well-known psychological uh, research paper that was published now many years ago, a decade or so ago by uh, Matthew Lieberman, UCLA. And he says, or discovered, that if you name your emotions, hindrances, any kind of emotional drama, you begin to tame them. And he did brain scans of people experiencing negative emotions. And he says, putting negative emotions into words calms the brain's emotional center. Meditators label their negative emotions to let go of them. And he says, when you put feelings into words, you seem to be hitting the brakes on emotional reactivity. When you put emotion into words, it has the effect of putting the brakes on emotional reactivity. Meditators' brain scans are starkly different than non-meditators, meaning that there's the greater activity in the area of the brain associated with thinking in words 
about emotional experience and there's a decrease in the activity of the emotional processing. Science catches up with the Buddha. Hmm. Upandita says of mindfulness, a life without mindfulness is like food without salt. Salt brings out the flavor of anything. Somebody was talking to me the other day, did you ever have really dark chocolate with salt on it? I, somehow it makes salt, it makes the chocolate taste better. I mean, chocolate's pretty good. But salt, <laughs> however it works, mindfulness is like that. Mindfulness brings out the flavor of the present moment's experience. Now, fortunately for pleasant experiences, but unfortunately for unpleasant experiences, because to bring out the flavor of painful experience means to make it really much sharper, much clearer, much more piercing, I should say. The mind really gets touched by painful experience. But because mindfulness is the ability to recognize the present moment, it is useful in every area of our life. Every area of our life. I was just reading an article uh, today about the wandering mind. It's in the newspaper. About the wandering mind. And they were saying, imagine being in a traffic jam without being able to have a wandering mind. And I thought, what's the problem with that? <laughs> you know, they were saying, all you could do was just be there with the traffic jam. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> you could do meta. You could do, you know. And they were making a big problem out of, and making a virtue out of the wandering mind. Anyway. Forget that. But anyway, <laughs> mindfulness is useful in every activity of life. And we'll talk more about it towards the end of the retreat, about developing all the paramis, all the wholesome qualities of mind, patience, loving kindness, generosity, uh, equanimity. It's also necessary in all the, course, all the practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. Sila, living in harmony or living according to ethical uh, precepts, samadhi, of course, developing concentration and, and insight. One way that mindfulness works is that it sees the way things are. And when the momentum of mindfulness is developed and there's some continuity and clarity of seeing the way things are. We are unable to deceive ourselves. We usually put a spin on things. You know, we put a we put a favorable spin on uh, experiences so that they they fit. Or we, we if if we, well, we put a negative spin on things if we if we want to blame somebody. But the mind that is mindful, cannot put a spin on. It sees things as they are. There's a quality of mind called ujukata, straightness of mind, that gets strengthened 
as mindfulness gets strengthened. And it means we're no longer able to deceive ourselves. This is important in the practice of sila, precepts. Acting in a way in accord with your inner uh, intention, acting in a way that uh, where you don't harm yourself or others. Because the forces of attachment, obsession, addiction, or the forces of hatred, aversion, impatience, irritation, are so deeply conditioned in the mind. We have a very sophisticated rationalization system in place to justify anything we want to do. We do. We have this, just this very sophisticated rationalization system. And in spite of knowing somewhere up here, you know, knowing up here that something's wrong, it's not right to behave this way or misbehave this way or act this way or speak this way, when we do, we can justify it. We can rationalize it until we develop mindfulness. And then mindfulness doesn't lie. Mindfulness doesn't lie. Mindfulness won't let you lie to yourself. You see it. You just see, this, this is really where I'm coming from. This is really what I'm doing. This is really what it feels like. And it is such a valuable support for, well, it's a necessary support for refining your commitment to living ethically. You know, the shaming principle of you shouldn't do that because only goes so far. Beyond that, we really need to see for ourselves where the pain is in the subtlety of what we say, how we say, when we say, what we do, when we do, how we do. And it really is a very refining capacity of the mind in our uh, ethical life to, to develop mindfulness. It points out, I mean, you don't have to let anybody else tell you. You'll see for yourself what is right and wrong. The, the qualities of Hiri and Otapa that has this um, very refined sense of what is right in your mind and what is a little squirrely. What is right in your community, whether it's your community, geographical community or your spiritual community or your family community, what is right and acceptable in that community. This, this is very important to, to uh, attend to, to, to recognize, so that we l choose to live in harmony with ourselves, and we choose to live in harmony with others. Uh, if we act carelessly then, of course, you know, there's going to be suffering. I was in the monastery in um, Burma, and when I went there, I was very determined, um, probably very ambitious <laughs> about it, but I was very determined to, to, to get the benefit of practice. 
and I was not there for a social life, although there's plenty of social life in a monastery, um, or it's available. And there was one monk there, another Western monk, who was less diligent, let's say. And he, 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 just, he just loved to talk. And so he would, um, he, he, he aimed his, he targeted me somehow. He wanted to talk to me. And uh, I used to sit in my room at that time, and he, he had a room down at the other end of the hall. And because he used to come every day to, to, to talk to me, to talk at me, or to talk with me, uh, I got to dread it. <laughs> and so I'd be sitting, and as soon as I would hear his door open down at the other end of the hall, I would contract. And I'd start getting angry. And he would come, knock on the door, and just come in until I locked the door. Then he'd just stand outside the door and talk. <laughs> at me. And I, I would do, I tried everything to, to remind him of the rules of not talking, to uh, put him on limits like I'll only talk just before lunch or, or breakfast or on our way to lunch or breakfast uh, or only for, you know, for three minutes at a time or five minutes at a time. He didn't care. He was, when he wanted to talk, he was there. And I tried everything to to, well, control him with my anger. It didn't touch him. So I said, well, this isn't working. I've got to do something else. So I tried ignoring him. You know, he'd come, didn't hear him. You know, didn't answer the door, didn't pay any attention, didn't look. But I was seething. <laughs> you know, resentment practice. <laughs> didn't work. Then I, then, then I really got smart. I said, oh, meta, that's what I'll do. May you be happy. <laughs> May you be peaceful in your room. <laughs> I got good at meta, but I didn't get, didn't get rid of my anger. It wasn't until I actually turned my attention to what I was experiencing. You know, hearing sounds, judging the person, feeling, you know, the energy, and just, it was very unpleasant. It was very unpleasant. That's why I had the aversion. But by turning my attention to the, act the actual experience, rather than what I was imagining about him and my judgments of him, and just feeling it, it became possible to just sit there, or to stand there, and just to hear what he was saying, respond minimally, accept the unpleasantness, and just tolerate it. It wasn't like grit your teeth and tolerate it. It was just, it was just there. It's like the weather. It's just there. And I realized then that, you know, trying to get rid of, trying to fix, trying to explain, trying to control, you know, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's just not going to work. Vipassana practice, mindfulness to develop vipassana or understanding is to pay attention to whatever is arising. And sometimes you have good conditions for practice and sometimes they're more obstructive. But nevertheless, that's the way it is. In, in, in uh, 
the center where I've been practicing the last few years at Saito Utejaniya's uh, center, Sri Yuman Center, it is absolutely a madhouse. It is so noisy. It is so much activity. It's just unbelievable. There is Burmese karaoke blaring over loudspeakers most of the time. If it isn't karaoke, it's Burmese opera, which is a little more shrill than Chinese opera. <laughs> There's dogs and cats and chickens and people in cars and even in the hall. You're sitting in the hall. People are up back making flower arrangements, talking. It's just, you know, it's just, that's the way it is. If you have the mistaken belief that it should be quiet to practice, you will really suffer. But if you understand that practice is to be aware of present moment's experience and your reaction, your relationship to it, you give it up. You give it up. You let go of reaction. I mean, it's just, you can sit in the just endless noise and it's not, dis it's not distracting, it's not disturbing, it's not agitating. There was a, the last time I was there, there was a, um, a sitting, and then, you know, at 7 o'clock one morning, nuns at a nearby nunnery started chanting. Oh, that, that was kind of nice. It was a nice chant, you know. And they started chanting, and they kept chanting, and then after an hour, a different group would chant, or a different, per different nun would come and chant. Another hour, another nun would chant. This went on for three days. <laughs> Day and night, two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. One night at two o'clock, they up, they up the volume. At two o'clock, I'm, I'm hoping it was a mistake. I'd hate to think anybody had the intention, but it's an interesting thing. You know, of course, you just zone out, or you, you zone it out, you tune it out, and you're just you're just working with your own internalized stuff. But at the end of three days, when they finished whatever it was they were chanting, they said, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> I didn't hear the first one, but I was ecstatic by the second one. <laughs> Mindfulness really knows everything. <laughs> I want to distinguish mindfulness that leads to concentration only and mindfulness that leads to insight. Because there's there's a fair amount of overlap and a fair amount of confusion. You know, metta, or loving-kindness, is a concentration practice. It's for calming the mind of its aversions and for developing a loving heart. When we develop loving-kindness, we arouse Mindfulness of metta 
moment by moment, right? We arouse the feeling or the phrase or the image of the person or we try to arouse awareness of loving kindness moment by moment. So we could say my metta is a mindfulness practice. But because the object of the awareness is metta, moment after moment after moment after moment, it has the effect of strengthening the mind's momentum towards that object only. And when the momentum is really strong, nothing else can get in. You know, the metta becomes very strong, very powerful. Other experiences of body, mind, aversion, whatever, they just don't get in because the mind is so powerfully mindful of this chosen single object. The subjective feeling of that is one of increasing stillness, increasing seclusion of mind and calmness. Calmness of body, calmness of mind, and and it just can get very smooth. The, the flow of metta towards your chosen object. In mindfulness leading to insight, we arouse the same qualities of mind, the connecting to the present moment, the sustaining on the present moment, the attention to the present moment, the energy to, to put the mind on the present moment. But the present moment is a changing thing. It's the in-breath now, it's the out-breath next. It's the stepping now, the hearing later. And so the factors of mind, the attention, the connecting, the sustaining, the energy, they're all the same factors, but they're directed to the present object, which is changing. when we're able to recognize the changing objects from in-breath to out-breath to sound to sensation to thought to internal to external to gross to subtle object, then there's a continuity. We're able to sustain the continuity of mindfulness on changing objects. The same degree of collectedness of mind occurs practicing mindfulness of changing objects as the degree of collectedness of mind that occurs when you're mindful of a single object. The mind gets collected. It goes to the same object in loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, or visualizing a color or something like that. But the same factors are involved in Vipassana practice, connecting, sustaining, energy, attention, although the object is changing. With a concentration practice, we we say that this is a, a, a stabilizing concentration. It's a single focus concentration. In the collectedness of Vipassana practice, we call it a momentary concentration, meaning all the factors for concentration or collectedness 
arise in this moment on this object. The same factors arise in the next moment on a different object. It's momentary concentration on that object. The next moment, out-breath, sensation, thought, whatever it is, all the factors of mind, all the collecting factors of mind, gather and land on this next moment of a different experience. So we call it momentary concentration, meaning the mind is collected in each moment, even though the moments are different objects. And the same degree of collectedness can occur with Vipassana practice on changing objects as on samatha or concentration practice with a single object. However, the subjective experience of collected momentary concentration, Vipassana practice, is not one of increasing stillness and increasing tranquility. It is actually of increasing numbers of objects and intensity of their phenomena, recognizing their particular nature. Meaning, when you feel some discomfort or something unpleasant, it's really unpleasant. When you feel something pleasant, it's really pleasant. When the mind is wandering, it's really wandering. When you get excited, it's really excited. When you feel afraid, it's really afraid. You, you, the, the mindfulness, because the mind is so collected, taste penetrates, goes into the unique flavor of each moment's experience with, and, and tastes it with greater, what, pizzazz. The flavor is enhanced through the mindfulness. And so the subjective feeling of improving Vipassana practice is not one of calmness, tranquility, and pleasantness. It's just the opposite. It's of increasing intensity and in some ways kind of like, it's not chaotic, but it's like, it's, it's incessantly changing. Well, this is not what we had hoped to experience in our meditation. Mostly we like to think, oh, come to meditate and chill out, calm down, open up, relax, love and peace and space. Yeah, okay. Vipassana practice is not going in that direction. So, we need to do a little uh, reframing of our experience to practice Vipassana practice with confidence. Don't look for calmness of mind. Look for con continuity of awareness. If you look for calmness of mind, if you evaluate your Vipassana practice by calmness of mind or uh, what would you call it? Kind of mm, calmness of mind. That's what we really like. Calmness of mind and body. Stability uh, is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And you're going to evaluate your practice erroneously, wrongly, and, and probably get depressed. <laughs> yeah. Have some doubt about your practice. 
and uh, a day later you'll want to leave. That's what happens. You know? but, but it's only because you have a wrong idea about Vipassana practice. Vipassana practice is to, is to taste the present moment, to really come to know the unique flavor of this moment whether it's a sensation in the body, or a state of mind, or a mental flavor, or uh, the, 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 the taste of planning, the taste of narrating, the taste of figuring out, the taste of sensations in the body, is to know these tastes. Why is this important? This is the unique flavor of each moment. And much of the early part of Vipassana practice is cataloging the flavors of the mind and the flavors of the body. It's just what, what is it you experience? And just getting really familiar with the range of pleasant and unpleasant mental and physical phenomena. It's essential to actually connect, sustain your attention on present moment in order to taste the present moment. When we do this, we begin to see that this taste in this moment just arose, lasted for a split second, and came to an end. And another taste in the next moment arose, arises, is tasted, and comes to an end. And in the next moment, another taste arises, is tasted, and comes to an end. If we're just thinking about our practice, we don't see the arising, the tasting, and the coming to an end. It's because we're tasting that we know the flavor has finished. It's because we're tasting we know when the flavor is finished. Well, this is the beginning of insight. This is where we begin to see things change. Not because we're thinking about it, not because we can say, well, yesterday it was like this and today it's different, therefore things change. It's because we're tasting change as it happens. We see this is sweet, this is sour, this is pleasant, this is painful, this is thinking, this is planning, and we're tasting those flavors. This is where we begin to see through our own direct experience the insight into impermanence, where we really see things arise and pass away, where we really see that that which is pleasurable isn't very satisfying because it doesn't last, dukkha. It's where we also begin to see that that which arises is not within our control. Things just happen. Body sensations, mental stuff, it just happens. And we see. We, we don't direct the show. Stuff just arises. And we see that. And we begin to understand how conditioned and how impersonal the experiences of life really are. This is beginning to see the what's called the anatta, or the not-self characteristic. We see these directly, immediately, not through thinking about it, not through imagining it, but through direct 
contact with touching something, it's there and gone. Touching the next thing, it's there and gone. It is only through this kind of contact that liberation is possible. Truly seeing, this is the way things are, and coming to terms with the, the, the three characteristics, that they change, that they cannot provide the stability that we seek, and that they are impersonal or out of our control, even though we are responsible for responding to them, taking care of them. This unique nature, the, the conditioned nature, and the universal nature of phenomena is the process of, of entering into insight practice. When you practice samatha or concentration practice, you don't notice these. You don't notice these. You're not interested in the unique nature, the conditioned nature, and the universal nature of phenomena. You're just enjoying the stillness and the pleasantness of being absorbed in the object of choice. So I, I take some time to, to identify the difference between mindfulness of concentration practice and mindfulness leading to insight practice so that you can begin to monitor in your own practice when you're doing one or when you're doing the other. <clears throat> Mindfulness is the key. Awareness. It is simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy because of habits. And part of mindfulness is to discover our habits. Discover the deeply conditioned habits of mind that I spoke about last night. The hindrances, <coughs> the defilements, the reactivity that so quickly uh, proliferates with everything. And beginning to recognize it and, <coughs> and not get caught in it not act it out, not suppress it. But to see it is just another experience being known. Mahasi Sayadaw, who's, as I mentioned, the, the kind of the grandfather of this tradition of practice, says, Ask the question, doesn't a dog know when it's gnawing on a bone? Of course, the dog knows it's gnawing on a bone. Well, isn't someone aware when they're enjoying the taste of sweet food? Yes, generally. But he says, yes, generally but they do not know the continuity of the taste, but they only know the taste intermittently. They are unaware of the intention to lift their arm, to open the mouth, to place the food in the mouth, the chewing and the tasting. And they misperceive this experience believing it is I who am enjoying this food. It is really making me happy. That's a misperception. 
when seen through the lens of insight. So the general awareness of knowing what is going on is not insight, is not sufficient for the development of liberating insight. It is only through this intimate feeling of the unique flavor of each moment that we begin to get true, empirical, self-verified understanding of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature. To paraphrase Kalu Rinpoche, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is reality, we are that reality. And once you know this, you realize that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. So let's sit for a moment and let the words... <laughs> 